Hi, my name is Mark Chansky. I'm the coordinator of the Reformed Baptist Network. And here we are bringing another Net Talk episode. Net Talk is a podcast where we discuss topics related to the purpose of the Reformed Baptist Network, and that is glorifying God through fellowship and cooperation and fulfilling the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. And here, a very important element of that Great Commission is to be able to uh, teach all things that the Scriptures give to us. And we have with us uh, Pastor Greg Nichols, who has written uh, really a, a, a systematic theology, and the focus is going to be on a uh, recent volume, volume four, that's come out on ecclesiology. Uh, Greg, good to have you with us here. Thank you, Mark. It's a privilege to be with you. Well, we, we consider it a privilege to have you here, Greg. And I just want to give a little bit of a a little bit of a bio here regarding you, some background information, and you can fill in some of the slots that I leave unmentioned. Greg, I know that you are the, the pastor now of Amazing Grace Church of the Catskills in New York, and that's by Woodstock, right? Yes, it's not far from Woodstock. It's located in the town of Catskill, New York. All right. All right. And, and Greg, you've been a pastor for over 40 years. Yes. Uh, you're a graduate and you're a former professor at Trinity Ministerial Academy that's in Montville, New Jersey, and you pastored there for many years. In fact, it was while you were there that I actually met you, Greg. I think we calculated it was really about, oh, 42 years ago, back in 1982, when I was actually spying out the land regarding the possibility of going to Trinity Ministerial Academy. And uh, you were a legend back in those days, for me, anyway. And then uh, eventually you moved to Grand Rapids and you pastored at Grace Emanuel Reformed Baptist Church. How many years was that, Greg? I was a pastor there for 25 years. For 25 years there. And uh, I know that, Greg, you, you are now off in the Catskills. And how long have you been there? I've been there since uh, 2020. I, All right. All I right. regard myself as an interim pastor. When you're 75, about to turn 76, I regard that as interim pastor by definition. Ah, oh, Greg, the years have treated you well. I consider you to be a man in, in very good shape and with your wits still all about you. I know three score and 10 or four score if by strength, God has given you strength. I'm thankful to God for the way that he's blessed me with, as far as I know, good health and uh, happily married to uh, my beloved wife, Ginger, for 46 years. 46 years with Ginger? Yeah, we're very thankful. You have four thankful. children? Yes, four children, six grandchildren. We're very thankful for the way the Lord has blessed us. Praise God. has caused the boundary lines to fall for you in pleasant places, brother. That is true. Now, Greg, you're also the author of a number of works. I know uh, earlier on, what does the Bible say about God and uh, yeah. the biblical doctrine of God? In fact, I have right here the uh, the book on covenant theology, a Reformed and Baptist perspective on God's covenants. And even looking at this and dipping into this a little bit 
I'd love to even interview you on this someday because it's so rich. And I find really a lot of what you have held by way of conviction regarding covenant theology, that's just a, a part of me. And I breathe in the same way that you do. So I'd love to be able to discuss that sometime. But we really want to talk about this uh, this Lectures in Systematic Theology series of volumes you've put out. Volume one, Doctrine of God. Yes. And volume two, The Doctrine of Man. Yes. Volume three, The Doctrine of Christ. And really what we want to focus on is volume four, which is the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology. Right. And I noticed that... Uh, uh, you've had some comments uh, from many, uh, including Brian Borgman. I really believe uh, Brian Borgman is one of the best breathing expositors of the word. <laughs> and then also you've got, in fact, we plan on interviewing him very soon regarding his commentary on Ecclesiastes that's coming out. And also uh, Bob Gonzalez as well mm -hmm. uh, has made comment, and I really appreciate the perspectives of uh, Dr. Gonzalez, Reformed Baptist Seminary. I'm very thankful for their endorsements. And then your, your book, uh, this series, will be distributed by you know, Trinity Book Service, also by uh, Amazon. It's available there soon. Uh, anyone else regarding the distribution of the book, Greg? I believe Solid Ground also has. Oh, uh, that's right. Solid Ground as well. Okay, so so that's some of the that's some of the beginnings and fundamentals but but let's let's go a little further now greg just regarding the whole issue of uh okay ecclesiology doctrine of the church and and maybe before i even jump into the specifics of the content i anyone who looks at your work greg will notice that you make uh an interesting approach in your addressing these theological themes you have a a wonderful style of citing multiple passages that bear on a subject. And for me, it really stresses the importance of, of biblical authority in my mind, the idea of sola scriptura. Talk, talk a little bit about that and, and why you cite so many scriptures and why that's an important thing for you and your approach to systematic theology. Yes. Well, it's been my stewardship to teach systematic theology since 1979, I started. Mm. Started with what eventually came out as volume two, uh, The Doctrine of Man. And it was just an avenue that God opened for me to do. And so what I've done is there are two components to topical teaching and topical studies. The first is what I would call a dogmatic component. The second is an exegetical component. And the dogmatic component, you look up in your preparation, all that you can find that have been written by good men that have studied the scriptures, because God has given illumination to his servants over you know, thousands of years. And you can't just study the scripture as though you were the only person to ever study that topic. But with if you do, you, 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 you're probably not going to do a very good job of it. And you, you probably are going to make some pretty serious 
mistakes because you don't have the proper deference to those that have received light and illumination from the Lord in the past. But having said that, the ultimate authority, as you say, is scripture. And so and just one of the ways in which those men and their writings are helpful is to identify all the key passages of scripture on a topic. So when you're doing systematic theology, what you're doing is topical teaching. But it's not just any kind of topical te teaching. It's topical teaching on the major themes of the Bible. And what you're trying to do is to present and apply the comprehensive teaching of the Bible on the major themes of the Bible in biblical categories and proportions. So you want to study it comprehensively. You want to get all that the Bible says on that topic, and you don't want to add to it, and you don't want to subtract from it, and you don't want to distort it. So what I try to do is find all the biblical testimony on a topic, or every text, and then present all, collect all that data, and then present it as accurately as I can without adding, subtracting, or distorting. And I try, I'm, and in systematics, that's what I'm doing for the major themes of the Bible. Now, I could identify what those major themes are, the content of systematic theology, why we get to the doctrine of the church, when that's, I don't know, whether you want me, I'll just do that in a minute. Well, Greg, I, I, Greg, Greg, your approach sounds really scientific, sort of, in the sense that you're trying to take in data. Does this have anything to do with the fact that you were a chemical engineer before you I didn't you realize it. Yes, I think you're right. I didn't realize it for many, many years. But I think that my chemical engineering background definitely has contributed to that. I don't approach systematic theology as a philosopher or, or ultimately as someone that's into dogmatics. Although, like I said, you have to respect the light of the past. But I approach it, I, I think of it as theological engineering. That's, that's right. Well, Lloyd-Jones was a physician, and he became a physician for souls. Mm -hmm. God used it for great good. And here, you were a, a chemical engineer, and the Lord caused it to enable you to be systematically thinking about how to put together his word in such a way that it can be accurately comprehended. Uh, that's what I'm trying to do. That's the goal. So the, the major themes of the Bible, God and his work. So the shorter catechism sums it up. What we are to believe concerning God what and what, what the scriptures principally teach and what duty God requires of man. So you have the doctrine of the Bible, the doctrine of God and his works, and the doctrine of Christian ethics. So then, you, you know, man's duty. So then you, if you get to God and his works, you have God, creation, and salvation. And that's the section of systematic theology that it's been my stewardship to teach. So in volume one, it's the doctrine of God, or as you say, what does the Bible say about God was an earlier version of that, of volume one. And then volume two, the original creation, creation, providence, man, sin, common grace, the story of the original creation. Volume three is the first part of the doctrine of the great work of salvation, salvation, Plans, salvation promised, salvation accomplished, salvation applied, salvation completed. Salvation planned, predestination. Salvation promised, God's covenants. And the covenants book that you uh, alluded to, that is part of Christology, the promise of salvation. Um, and then 
the accomplishment of salvation, a person and work of Christ, that's all in volume three. So volume four, the stream widens. Uh, the application of salvation, the application of salvation in the, in, in the corporate society of the saved, the doctrine of the church, in the Christian life, what's called soteriology proper, the doctrine of Christian life, and the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So the, the application of salvation is really three volumes. There's so much data in the Bible about it, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of Christian life, which God willing, if I live long enough, volume five, and volume six, doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and then the completion of salvation, volume seven, eschatology. So there's so that, the overview, Greg. There's the overview. It. Excellent. That's it. That's where it fits. Let, let's narrow our focus to that doctrine of the church. Greg, why, okay. why is a focus on the church so important? In fact, I, you, you, you've said me before that a friend of yours said, if you want to know the truth, then go to church. So, so what, what is the importance of the church? You talk about the works of God. One could say that the, the magnum opus of the carpenter from Nazareth is the church. On this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against. Talk about the importance of the church, just in thumbnail sketch here. Okay. In the final chapter or topic of the book, I get into the issue of um, churchmanship. And the chapter or, or topic is entitled The Importance and Improvement of the Church. Mm -hmm. Why is it important? Light and life. That mm -hmm. what you were alluding to is a quote from a lay preacher named Kenny Harris, mm -hmm. who said, if you want to know the truth, go to church. That the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. It brings gospel truth to a world dead in sin. It shines gospel light in a world steeped in darkness, mm -hmm. despair. It gives hope to, a, to the world. And there is no other institution that God ordained to be the pillar and ground of the truth other than the church. Mm -hmm. The church has spiritual life in a world that's dead, and it has gospel light in a world that's dark and blind. Mm -hmm. And there's no other place to go. If you want to know the truth, like Kenny said, go to church. Well, Greg, yeah, can't somebody get the truth by reading your systematic theology or by watching our podcast? Isn't that enough? Well, the pillar and ground of the truth is the church. It's not anything else other than the church. It's not, it's not podcasts or books. It's, it's the church. So yeah, I, yeah, that's that that's where that's where we need to go. Yeah, it's 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 uh, it's being a member, immersing ourselves in the life with a community that is able to uh, spur one another on to love and to good works, to hold each other accountable, to have uh, fellowship together and breaking bread together and receiving the ministry of the word together and prayer together. This is, this is again, Christ's great work. He came to build the church, not the podcast, or not even the systematic theology. Not the systematic theology book, that's right. Yes, yes. So, so, so Greg, what about this issue of, uh, okay, church, okay, church, new covenant, new testament, but 
there was the people of Israel in the Old Testament, Old yeah, Covenant. That's Talk right. to me about, about continuity between Israel and the church, and then elements of discontinuity, and, and as far as our understanding of the church, just get a thumbnail sketch there about how we can properly understand that relationship between Israel and the church. Okay. I think that that's a, that's a very good question. I want to start by saying that one of the things I've noticed over the years in studying topics that so many errors in different branches of Christian, uh, let's just say Christendom, come from the taking of part of the biblical data and leaving out other parts of the biblical data. So when you take it all, you see there's a balance. There's, a, there's this beautiful balance between the error of dispensationalism on the one hand and the error of pedo-baptism on the other hand. And the discontinuity and the continuity overdone, and the dis and the continuity overdone again. There's that, a Goldilocks zone, a sweet spot that, in that, there. That, that's that's it. And you and when you get all the biblical data, you can see how one side grabs onto certain texts, and other side grabs onto other texts. But we got to take all the data, and that's the first thing I would say about it. Second thing I would say about it is that that I do address this in the chapter on the institution of the church. I also address it in the chapter on the identity of the church. And one aspect of the identity of the church being the people of God and the transition of the people of God from being Hebrew Israel under the old covenant to Christian Israel under the new covenant. So you have one people of God and you have continuity and yet you have two covenants, old and new and discontinuity and you have transformation, spiritual renovation and gospel transformation of God's people from being Hebrew Israel under the old covenant to Christian Israel under the new covenant. And the one who does that gospel transformation is Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And he brings God's one people from being Hebrew Israel to being Christian Israel, uh, no longer under the old, but now under the new covenant. And I would say that the identity of the church is Christian Israel under the new covenant. Well said, well said. So, so we think of Christian Israel worshiping under the new covenant. Yes. Uh, what, what about the, the nature of that worship? We, we would embrace uh, a concept of what we call the regulative principle of worship in the church. Yes. As opposed to a normative principle of worship. Can, can you kind of distinguish that? Because that's really crucial when we think of the things that we do in church. I know you later on in the uh, 668, I think, in your volume, you begin to talk about that issue of the regular principle. Can you unpack that a little bit? Okay. Yes, I do address the regulative principle in the chapter or topic on worship. That is true. I do, I do address that. And I do address the uh, how the Lord institutes 
and regulates worship under the new covenant and how we should include everything that he ordains. We should include only what he ordains. And we should distinguish between the elements and the circumstances of worship as is specified or, or outlined in chapter one of our own 1689 Confession of Faith. So yes, that, that is a, um, I, let me say another thing. My, this book is not polemical per se. I don't approach it from a polemical point of view. Uh, it's not given to address errors or topics, per uh, errors or misconceptions per se. The primary purpose of the book is to expound and apply all the key passages of scripture on every aspect of the topic. Yes. So, yes. so, I, so I don't specifically mention this, this argument between, is it a regulative principle or a normative principle? I don't get into that debate per se. But I do share the idea that, it, the, that worship under the new covenant is regulated by the will of God, even as it was under the old covenant, by the word of God and by the word of God alone. And that the rule under the new covenant is set forth by God incarnate, Jesus Christ. Yes. And, and I think of even all, we talk about Israel, old covenant, Israel, new covenant, the church, and what are some of the passages that would come to mind regarding that whole idea of, of a regulative principle of worship? Oh, I guess we would say maybe uh, uh, the institution of the tabernacle worship with Moses and then Nadab and Abihu and the, the fire coming down and striking them because they became innovative in their approach. Can, can you touch on that and, and describe the significance of that? Yes, I do address some of those passages when I get into the biblical theology of worship and the background of worship. But the passage that I explicitly use that defines most clearly the regulative principle is John chapter four. Worship in spirit and in truth. <laughs> That's. That's where Jesus articulates the regulative principle for corporate worship under the new covenant. So then, Greg, what, what kind of emphasis would we have in the church regarding activities that we partake of in the, in the I mean, you're a pastor now there in the Catskills. Yes. Uh, priority activities in the church of Christ. Priority. Are you speaking now about worship or about the vocation of the church in a broader sense? I'll, I'll just say, you say worship primarily right now. Right. Well, the spiritual sacrifices that the Lord ordains for his royal priesthood of believers to mm. him are the sacrifice of contrition, the sacrifice of consecration, which we offer all the time, but we bring a consecrated <clears throat> heart and a contrite heart into the church when we come to worship. Not that we only have it there, but we bring it there. And then with that, in faith, we offer the sacrifice of praise, which is the fruit of lips. It makes confession to his name. And the sacrifice of donation or the sacrifice of giving, which is regarded very clearly in the New Testament as a spiritual sacrifice. And then we hear and read 
and expound and proclaim the word of God. And we observe the ordinances that Christ has ordained for his church uh, on select Sundays, the Lord's Supper, and when we're inducting a new disciple into the society of God's people under the new covenant, Christian baptism. And those, yeah, that's, those that's, are the, I'm sorry. That's, that's thinking, excellent. And, and those, those elements are the broad strokes regarding those things which Christ has prescribed that, that the scriptures ask us to bring as opposed to our that's it. Uh, innovative creativity. That's it. And so we pray, we, we sing, we give, we read and hear the word of God. We observe baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I'm, I'm not saying that baptism can only be observed in a church service. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that. But, but that's what we do in, in our worship, because that's what the Lord has ordained for us to do. We don't so you're have... saying, Greg, it would be acceptable for us to baptize someone out here in Holland, Michigan, uh, at the Holland State Park it in would. Lake Michigan yes. for the public to view that? Yes, of course. Well, all right, because we, 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 we've done it that way. Well, what about the theme of, of uh, like a Hebrews 12, 28, how uh, we are to bring to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe? And I think I, I had mentioned to you recently how, uh, oh, it was John Piper that, that stepped into a little bit of an interesting discussion when he tweeted out, can we reassess whether... Sunday coffee sipping in the sanctuary fits. And the issue was that our day and age has become quite casual in our approach to worshiping God in the church of God, the pillar and foundation of the church where two or three are gathered, Matthew 18, there he is profoundly in our midst. You want to touch on that at all? I don't address sipping coffee in the <laughs> No surprise to me, Greg. I'm just trying to... Uh, I don't address it, that. Make it uh, touching on some of the things I, that are happening I, in January I, of I, I 2024. Understand. I do believe that that worship should be reverent, mm. should also be joyful. If it's produced by the Holy Spirit, it will be joyful and it will be reverent. Yes. And no contradiction between... Those those two things. Yeah, but and I notice how you're you're very unwilling to legislate, yay or nay, on particulars of that worship because I do think uh, profoundly uh, there needs to be uh, each church seeking the face of God regarding what takes place. I was just uh, in Jamaica two weeks ago, and. Uh, or you've been in Zambia or various places throughout the world and realize that some people are going to, oh, take music. They're going to use different styles of music. Reverence and awe may be expressed differently in different regions and different cultures. That's true. That's right. I would agree with you 100%. Yeah, curious on this topic. Lord's Supper. I know that there are some churches that will have Lord's Supper every Sunday? Yes. Others might have it once a month. Any input you would have on that? Well, I don't really address that in the book either. I just leave that with regard to flexibility and, and the issue of judgment. I know there's a wide variety of opinions about how often it, 
should or could be unto edification in its uh, observation or observance. And you know, I don't. I'm. Are we in Catskill? We do it once a month, but I'm not dogmatic about that. Sure. Also, right. I want to say something else. I don't want to sound like I'm dodging things. We in Catskill, we don't let people eat and drink coffee in the sanctuary, but. I'm not sure that we have all these highfalutin reasons for it. I just don't think we want people making a mess in there. We would rather just have them eat in the in the fellowship hall. Yeah, you may not no, want stains. Not yeah, we don't want them stains in the chairs I, and stains in the carpet. Yeah, so I I can't necessarily say that I have all these high high spiritual reasons for it. It's more practical and sensitivity to the people who have to clean the church. Yes. But Greg, tell me about stuff, the manifold identity. Hey, what's that? The, the manifold identity of the church. You talk about that in chapter seven. You talk about it being spiritual family, new covenant people, living temple, holy city. Unpack some of that for me. Oh, yes, that's an important part of the doctrine of the church because one of the things that helps you, that question you asked me before about why is the church important? Well, the church is important, not only because it's pillar and ground of truth, but of its function and role in redemptive history, but also because it has a glorious, unique identity. The communion of saints, God's spiritual family, the people of God, God's people under the new covenant, the messianic kingdom the royal priesthood the living temple of god god's holy city heavenly zion his new creation the spiritual body and bride of christ what a glorious identity yeah there's probably i don't know somewhere between 80 and 100 pages in the book expounding that identity but if you realize what a glorious identity the church has, you realize how important it is. What other institution, what other, quote, corporation has an identity like that? Mm -hmm. As a glorious identity, what an honor and a privilege to be part of that glorious, I, that glorious corporate body. What, I mean, what, what an, what an honor, what a privilege. What can you say? Yeah. Great, Save, if of Zion City, I by grace am ember and let the world deride or pity. I will glory in his name. What a privilege to be part of Zion, to be his new, to be part of his new creation, his, his living temple, his royal priesthood, his messianic kingdom, his, his new covenant people, his spiritual family, his spiritual children. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, the communion of the saints. Right. It is a glorious identity. A wonderful privilege to be part of it. Greg, Matthew 18 speaks of where two or three of you gather, there I am in your midst. Yes. Talk about that element. How, how is the, the glorious gathering of the people of God in our midst? We are, we are a temple. Uh, Exodus 40, the Shekinah glory fills the temple, the presence. Talk about that. Where some may say, well, I can meet with God in my private Bible study alongside the fireplace early in the morning. Or if we have a gathering of a few folks over on a, a Tuesday evening for scriptural study, 
what's the difference at the church, Greg, regarding that presence of Christ? Well, the the Bible, there's a mystery about this issue of the special presence of God. The Bible speaks about God being everywhere. God's everywhere. He is, so if he's everywhere, how can he especially be somewhere? How can he especially be somewhere and not other places? Well, that's <clears throat> serious to me. I cannot totally comprehend that. I can't explain that. But I know that it's true. And he has said, though he's everywhere, that's true. I'm not denying it. He's also especially present in places that he calls his house. Lo, God is here. Let us adore. And mm. oh, dreadful is this place. This is none other than the house of God. Mm -hmm. This is the gate of heaven. This is where he has ordained to speak to his people, his mm. word. Yeah, that's and good. Greg. That, that, that's what that really, that's what that conveys. That this is the place that he has chosen to especially dwell and commune with his people and there speak to them his word. So if you want to experience that, go to church. Yes, Greg. And and I, and think I do. I, I want to experience that. that. That Matthew 18 context is speaking about another element regarding the church. Yes. And church. That's, that's the discipline of the church for the yes. purpose of the, the purity of the church. I think you, you talk about that in one of your chapters, maybe chapter 20-ish somewhere there, where that uh, that element of, of purity and discipline. Talk about that and its significance. Well, there's another chapter or topic. I, I think I've rearranged a topic number so many times. <laughs> I, I think it's topic 20 um, now in the final version. But uh, because the church is the kingdom of God, and, and because we are to love God's people, even the disorderly among God's people, hmm. the Lord has ordained a due process of church discipline to maintain purity and peace and a good testimony in the church. Mm. And in that particular chapter, I open up the biblical testimony to potential cases of discipline and then the biblical or apostolic polity of discipline and some practical guidelines for church discipline. I talk about um, private offenses and heretical teaching and brazen scandalous behavior like is described in first corinthians 5 disorderly brothers and also misconduct on the part of church officers mm -hmm. the bible addresses those five potential cases of church discipline explicitly and after i expound that biblical testimony then I summarize the biblical teaching with regard to the policies and principles of discipline that are presented in those uh, five potential cases, and then practical guidelines for the implementation of discipline in the church when you have to do it. It's not pleasant. It's never delightful. It's never fun, but sometimes it's very necessary.
Yeah, and, and we think of the idea of corrective church discipline, but there's also that element of, of formative church discipline, right? Yes, I think, uh, I've I think, heard I think, it. I, yes. I think of, uh, Greg, yeah. Greg just, to, just to drop in some uh, contemporary reference, uh, okay. the University of Michigan just lost Jim Harbaugh to the L.A. Chargers, and I, we just heard today that the strength and conditioning coach who really built these guys up in muscle and in mind He's gone over to the uh, Chargers, and he leaves the Wolverines without a strength conditioning coach. Isn't there a strengthening and conditioning element to church discipline as well? Yes, I've, I've, and this, that you bring up another interesting point. There are so many different ways that you can organize these different aspects of ecclesiology. What? you're referring to as formative discipline. And I don't have a problem with referring to it that way and seeing it that way. I refer to it as, uh, actually, I deal with it under the, under the topic. And I've, it's funny because I've dealt with it under different headings and rearranged it so many times, but now in its present form, I deal with it under the topic of brotherly love huh. and corporate nurture. Whereas there's, and, and, and the key text that I expound to deal with what's sometimes called, I don't have a problem with calling it formative discipline, but sometimes called that. I, the key passage I expound is Ephesians 4, 11 to uh, 16, where the pastors and teachers are given to build up the saints and to develop in them the, 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 the sound doctrines to bring them to the unity of the faith and to grow in grace, to attain Christian maturity, spiritual maturity. They're forming them. They're, so I can see why it's called formative discipline, because it's formative. It's taking a new believer and bringing them to a mature Christian. So I deal with it there in the context of brotherly love and nurture. And then there's the pastoral and the congregational aspects of that nurture that the body builds up itself in love in the last text there in Ephesians 4.16. Yes, so, spurring one another on to love and to good works, to keep with the athletic metaphor. I was running a race one time. It was about a 25-kilometer race, and three miles from the end, the guy started walking, and then there was a, a woman who was running. She says, don't you dare stop! <laughs> and the guy was spurred on, the rest of us around, I'm not going to quit because this sister is spurring us on. There's that, there's an element among God's people in the church, isn't there? There is. There certainly is. Yeah, and that's another important text, the one you're quoting in Hebrews. That's another important text with regard to that aspect or the congregational dimension of this nurture or formative discipline, yes. Greg, what about the idea of biblical basis for church membership. I, th I think you touch on that in topic nine. Uh, yeah. Because nowadays, people view membership merely as an invention of the clergy. Yes. Uh, but you sad. comment on that for us. Yeah, sadly, you're right about that. I, I, one of the things I say in that topic at the beginning is that probably 50 years ago, you wouldn't have to say this, but I go into some length and uh, to develop and expound the key passages that support the idea, the reality 
and necessity and importance of church membership. And I think it's sad that it's necessary to do that today, but I believe you're right that it is very necessary to do that today. Because so many people disparage church membership, sadly. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 12 indicates that we are members of the body. Yes. And just as we wouldn't see a kidney riding about all by itself on a motorcycle, no, a kidney is is engrafted into a body. And so each of us are parts of the body of Christ. Yes. I love your illustrations, Mark. I just love them. I just, just thinking about a kidney on a motorcycle just makes me laugh. Not right, Greg. It's not right. There'd be an isolated part of the body. You've got to be engrafted in. Greg, what, what about, Greg, um, the idea of uh, bringing into the body? Do you touch anywhere on the issue of uh, bringing people in? And I know among Reformed Baptists, the issue of age and children is kind of significant. Oh, yes. In, this, in the topic that you just mentioned, topic nine, I do address the issue of minor children and church membership because the Bible does address that. So I don't address it so much from a polemical point of view. I could say that I think there are two, as you well know, there are two different views on it. The one is that we should only bring adults into membership and the other is that we should bring children into membership as early as possible and almost to the point of being not quite Pato baptist of bringing them in at, at birth, but of bringing them into the church very, very early in life. Yeah, uh, either, well, they've got to turn 18, and once they turn 18, it can become very clinical, like, well, okay, I've got to finish my final exam in high school, I've got to prepare my open house, and I've got to write my testimony to get in the church. So I, I'm very sorry. clinical. But the other side can be any child who's, who's three years old, who's scared at night, and there's a thunderstorm, comes into mom and dad's room and say, I'm afraid, and you pray a prayer. And so those are, those right. can be extremes. They are. In my view, they are. So I think that one of the concerns that I have, they're extremes in one sense. And yet, I think that we need to judge each other with charity. I think they're both motivated by something good. The, the one side, Wants to the wants to bring them in very early. Wants to encourage the children. Yes, and the other side that wants to wait until they're adults and able to handle the liabilities and responsibility of membership wants to protect the children and wants to protect them from imposing on them like liability to church discipline as a teenager or exposure to things that they're really not ready to be exposed to as a young child. So you want to protect them. And you want to encourage them. So I think that rather than calling each other names and fighting about it, we ought to try to work together and find ways to both encourage them and protect them. Greg, I love I love the spirit that you bring, which is a spirit that does that does pursue unity. You know, the Lord Jesus said, just regarding different churches and different perspectives that might be held, uh, John 13, they will know that you're my disciples by the way that you, you love one another. And if someone has a different perspective on some of these very delicate and challenging issues, well, we can, we can work with one another and we can interact with one another about these things in an ironic fashion 
instead of being hypercritical against one another. Yeah, it's interesting that you probably haven't read it yet, but I closed that chapter with that verse. Is that right? Yes. Well, Greg, talk about closing. We're going to have to bring this to a close because we've gone quite a quite a few minutes here and we don't want to overtax our listeners. But Greg, last word. And any final thought you'd like to express regarding the importance of this, this theme of uh, the church and ecclesiology before we sign off? That the church's aims to glorify God. And what I hope and what I pray God uses the book and those labors to do is to bring glory to God in his church. Well that's said, the of it all. That's my aim. That's my hope. That's my prayer. That God would be glorified in his church and more glorified by his people. And Greg, that pulses through the pages of your book. And that's what makes it, I think, so useful. And, and Greg, you know, the text says regarding older, older guys like you and me, <laughs> it says, they shall bear fruit in their old age. And in your case, I see it hanging heavy on the limbs, and I praise God for it. Praise be to God, Mark. Thank you. Thanks, Greg, for spending time with us. Every blessing.